welcome back to Sad Girl Study Guides. As always, I'm your host, Amelia, and as always, I'm sad. Actually, I'm not that sad this week, but it would be pretty crappy of me as a host and an influencer in the realm of history podcasting to change my branding, so let's stick with the original intro. In this week's study guide, I'm going to be talking about Margaret of Anjou, Henry VI's wife, and one of the major players in the War of the Roses. However, before we really dive in to Margaret's life, I do want to say that this episode is actually going to be shorter than most of my episodes. I know I've been saying that a lot recently, but then I get really excited and ramble on and on, and the episode does end up being a normal length, but because so much of Margaret of Anjou's life is happening at the same time as Cecily Neville's life, a lot of the historical background is going to be the same, and I don't want to bore everyone by just repeating the same information over and over again, so I'm not Hence, why this episode might be a bit shorter. So, Margaret of Anjou. Once again, unless you had a history or English teacher back in high school who really liked Shakespeare's history plays, you probably never learned about Margaret of Anjou because of the same old reasons of women in medieval history just not existing in our school curriculum. But Margaret's study guide involves executions at sea, a mystery baby, and some major corpse desecration. Let's begin. Margaret of Anjou is born on March 23, 1429, in Lorraine, France. She is the fifth of her parents' ten children. Her father is René I, the Count of Anjou, and the King of Naples, Sicily, and Jerusalem. This sounds like René has a lot of power in Europe. He doesn't. While he has some pretty fancy titles as king, he doesn't actually hold land in any of those three kingdoms. Meanwhile, Margaret's mother is Isabella, the Duchess of Lorraine, a title which she holds in her own right. However, Margaret's birth comes at an awkward time for the family. When she was born, her maternal uncle had imprisoned her father over who should actually be in charge of Lorraine, and as a result, Margaret is mostly going to be raised by her mother's family in Aragon and Provence. Growing up, Margaret is going to have a pretty fabulous education from her mother and her maternal grandparents. She's going to be literate. She's going to be raised believing that female rulers can, in fact, be active, which is going to be very important in her later life, and she's going to grow up with some very traditional ideas around chivalry, which shouldn't be that surprising given that her father wrote one of the medieval era's best sellers on jousting and romance. When Margaret is 14 years old, she enters the European marriage market due to her family's connections to King Charles VII of France, who we discussed a little bit in the tangent cast on Catherine of Valois. As a brief reminder, Charles VII of France is the king who gets to be king of France due to Joan of Arc and her quest. Charles VII is married to one of Margaret's aunts, and through this connection, Margaret is a fairly decent 
ride in the European marketplace, even though she is only a fifth child of some lesser nobles. During her time at the French court, Margaret does pick up at least one admirer, Pierre de Brise, although there's no evidence that anything physical happened between the two of them, and she also gets engaged to a French count, but the engagement falls through. In 1445, an engagement is set up between Margaret of Anjou and Henry VI of England. This engagement is part of a larger peace treaty between England and France. In addition to the marriage, the treaty would give control of Anjou fully back to France. In the 1440s, Anjou technically belonged to England, but it was really in name only. The treaty and the subsequent marriage between Margaret and Henry was set up by the Lancaster faction of the English court. Remember, by the 1440s, due to Henry VI's long regency, because he was only a top because he was only a few months old when he became king of England, the English court was extremely, and I mean extremely divided, between the nobles who were pro-Lancasters and the nobles who were pro-Yorks, aka the king's cousins and those who held power in the north. So Margaret's marriage to Henry was part of the larger power plays that were already going on in the English court, and that 15-year-old Margaret had no idea were happening. As a result, the idea of the marriage between Margaret and Henry was pretty unpopular in England because, number one, Margaret of Anjou had no dowry. Remember, she is the fifth of ten children of a more minor European royal house who's already embroiled in internal drama, and number two, slightly more importantly, the marriage of Margaret and Henry means that England is going to be losing land in France. Also, as it's going to turn out, Margaret and Henry are going to be a very, 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 and I cannot emphasize this enough, very, very, very badly matched couple. At the time of their marriage, Margaret is 15 and Henry is 23, which, yes, extremely creepy to our modern sensibilities, but as we've learned throughout this podcast, wasn't all that bad of an age gap. More importantly, though, Margaret and Henry just had fundamentally incompatible personalities. Margaret was very passionate. She had opinions. She believed in traditional courtly romance, and she wanted that traditional courtly romance that she was brought up on. Henry, meanwhile, was extremely passive. He was really pious, super into religion, and had some weird tendencies like dressing up like a farmer for funsies. Apparently, his piety was so strong that when he was looking at pictures of potential brides, he insisted that the artists paint them like peasant women so he wouldn't be tainted by court finery. Yeah, not great. Margaret actually arrives in England on in April 1445. The journey over hadn't been the most pleasant. By the time she lands, she's extremely seasick and literally 
faints as soon as she gets off the boat, which is really a great way to start things off when everyone is determined not to like you. As a result of the seasickness and fainting, Margaret has to spend a few days recovering before she's even able to start making her way to London. And along the way to London, she and Henry meet for the first time, and yeah, it doesn't go well at all. Henry decides to give Margaret a letter while he's disguised as a squire so he can meet her without it being a whole big formal to-do. However, Margaret obviously does not recognize her husband-to-be, and when she sees the letter, she focuses on that, she's curious, she reads it, and she completely ignores her new husband slash the King of England, which everyone treats like a massive slap in the face, even though it's not really her fault. Despite this accidental snub, the marriage still goes ahead as planned, and Margaret of Anjou marries Henry VI of England and gets crowned queen a few weeks later in May 1445. Both the wedding ceremony and Margaret's coronation are huge, lavish, over-the-top affairs with tons of pomp and ceremony like any major state occasion is in English history. The English government spends about £5,500 on both events, and that's in 1440s money, and there's really, like, no way to convert that into 2020 dollars, but it's super expensive, taxes are raised, it's pretty unpopular. Except Margaret also has to pay out of pocket for some of the celebrations, Remember, she didn't have a dowry, she's not really bringing anything of like, material value to the wedding, but she did have to pawn off some of her own silver and some of her jewelry to actually pay for her journey to England, so she is making some sort of contribution. Despite this, the cost of the wedding festivities make Margaret even more unpopular in England. The English population feels like Margaret is just too expensive and she isn't bringing anything of value to the country. And as seems to be the trend in Margaret's episode so far, things get worse. The promised exchange of Anjou from English to French control doesn't exactly go smoothly. Yes, it will eventually happen, but Margaret is very much going to have to step in and intervene in the process to ensure that it does happen, and as a result, the English population thinks that she cares more about the French than about her new subjects, the English. As a fun side note, while all this is going on, Margaret suddenly has a lion that she has to deal with because, for unknown reasons, she was gifted a lion as a wedding present because why not? And she ends up sending the lion to the Tower of London to be fed and taken care of. And yeah, I, I'm not sure what happened to the lion. I'm assuming it was happy and lived a good life. But honestly, who knows? Soon after Margaret's wedding, she decides that she needs some allies at the English court if she's going to survive all the intrigue and backstabbing. 
and she decides to ally herself with the Lancaster faction at court because, as we've established, the Lancasters have always been a bit more explicitly pro-king. She's really going to get in close with the unofficial Lancaster leaders, Edmund Beaufort, and the Earl of Suffolk, which shouldn't be that much of a surprise because they had also been key in arranging her marriage to Henry. Unlike a lot of other foreign queens who marry into the English family, most of Margaret's friends and advisors at court are going to be English. She's going to be much more focused on befriending the locals instead of staying within a little circle of people from her home country, which will help her eventually gain power and influence. And she is going to gain power and influence. As it turns out, Margaret is going to do quite a lot of work as queen consort because Henry VI is not exactly into ruling. Margaret is going to try to get him to actually make decisions without relying solely on his advisors, but that fails, slash Henry is just extremely shit at it. Most of what he is going to do on his own as king during this section of his reign is just lose English territory in France, which will make everyone, including Margaret, more than a little bit annoyed. So, Margaret puts herself in charge of raising taxes throughout England and seems fairly competent at it. It's not like the country is going extremely bankrupt. She also becomes a patron of education in England and will establish Queen's College at Cambridge. However, it's not all raising money and opening colleges for Margaret because we still have that divided, bitchy, backstabbing court and Margaret is going to dive right in to the divisions and the scheming. Margaret's main rival at court is going to be the Duke of Gloucester, aka Henry VI's uncle, who had never been a huge fan of the marriage between Margaret and Henry. And because he is Henry's uncle, he does have a lot of sway and a lot of power, and Margaret would like to counter that power. Thank you very much. She ends up pulling some strings, and ends up orchestrating some pretty serious charges of treason against him with the hope of the Earl of Suffolk. Gloucester ends up dying in custody in 1447, although rumors at court quickly spread that Gloucester was murdered and Margaret was completely responsible for the supposed murder, which historically is pretty unlikely. Once again, Margaret quickly becomes unpopular and doing any goodwill that she might have had through her educational efforts. And right around this time, the English start losing land in France once again. Because of the massive English losses abroad, the Earl of Suffolk is blamed, he's forced into exile because of these losses and other various dramas at court, and during his time at exile, he ends up being executed while on a boat in an extremely botched beheading. After Suffolk's death, Margaret's position at court and the general court culture is getting a bit shaky. And for reference, we're only in 1450. So Margaret has only been in England for a 
about four years. And say what you will about Margaret, but she is extremely efficient at shaking things up. Margaret spends the next few years laying somewhat low. She's mostly spending time with Edmund Beaufort, which leads to all sorts of juicy rumors about the two of them, but nothing too dramatic is happening. We're not having any more major relatives getting accused of treason or not having anyone's head getting cut off in the middle of the ocean. And then in 1453, things really start falling apart because Henry VI starts to suffer from really severe mental illness, which he probably inherited from his mother, and begins to hallucinate and even begins dipping in and out of catatonic states, which means, yeah, he just can't rule. His cousin, Richard the Duke of York, the Yorkist leader, officially becomes the protector of the realm slash regent of England because of his past government service and the fact that Richard does have a fairly strong connection to the throne, which we talked about ad nauseum in the Cecily Neville episode. Even so, there is a bit of a power vacuum developing at the English court, and we all know that nature abhors a vacuum. In the middle of all of this, Margaret of Anjou gives birth to a son named Edward in October 1453. This means that Henry does have a heir, which helps ease some of the crisis. Yes, the heir is only a baby. Yes, we still will need a regency for the foreseeable future, but if Henry dies from said illness, things won't go completely belly up. Except that Henry refuses to recognize baby Edward as his, and rumors are swirling throughout the English court that Beaufort is actually the baby's father. And even nowadays, there is debate about the paternity of Prince Edward because it is unclear if Henry was actually capable of fathering a child or not. Margaret of Anjou is having none of this. She is determined to make sure that her son will be King of England someday. Thank you very much. And she decides the biggest threat to this school is Richard of York. Pretty quickly, we have a power struggle developing between Margaret and Richard. This power struggle comes to a head when Margaret purposefully excludes Richard from a great council meeting, which is a beautiful act of petty passive aggressiveness that just so happens to kick off the War of the Roses. Like I mentioned in the Cecily Neville episode, the War of the Roses officially starts with the Battle of St. Albans in 1455, which the Yorks win, and which, tragically for Margaret of Anjou, ends with the death of her BFF and possible lover, Beaufort. Pretty quickly after St. Albans, though, things between the Lancasters, aka Margaret of Anjou, and the Yorks, aka Richard hit a stalemate. The two sides agree that Richard will remain protector of the realm, but Margaret's son, Prince Edward, will stay 
heir to the throne. So we have an uneasy truce. And for a few years, the truce lasts. But Margaret has a habit of goading Richard and trying to pull away his power and limit his access to soldiers and things like that. It's only a matter of time before fighting breaks out again in 1459. And much like 1455, we have another Yorkist victory. Richard does so well in the fighting that Henry and Margaret are forced to acknowledge that Richard, not their son, will be the next king of England. In the drama, Henry gets captured by the Yorkists, and Margaret has to sort of peace out of the whole situation. Things are really at a low point for Margaret. As it turns out, Margaret does extremely well when her back is against the wall. She is able to form an alliance with the Queen Regent of Scotland, Mary of Gilders, and starts getting some Scottish soldiers as backup. Also, with Henry in Yorkist custody, Margaret can operate on her own and doesn't have to be held back by her frankly incompetent husband and not being held back by Henry VI works wonders. By December 1460, Margaret has a pretty sizable army ready to fight, and fight they will. Margaret ends up defeating the Yorkists at the Battle of Wakefield. During the battle, both Richard of York and his second son, Edmund, are killed. Richard is literally pulled off of his horse by Margaret's soldiers in the thick of battle, and Edmund is stabbed while pleading for his life, which isn't that nice, but does show how brutal these things can be. To show her dominance, Margaret has both of their heads cut off, has her men put a paper crown on Richard's head, and sticks it outside the walls of York as a warning to anyone who might try to rebel against her. Or at least, that's how the story goes. In actuality, Margaret of Anjou was sheltering in Scotland when all of this went down, so she probably didn't tell her men to do the whole paper crown thing. That message would have been pretty tricky to relay so quickly, but it does make her seem either like a badass or a totally bloodthirsty bitch. Once Richard of York is out of the picture, aka dead, Margaret is basically in control of England. She's queen in everything but name. She re-enters England in January 1461 with her young son, Prince Edward, in tow and sets things up so her son will be king once he's old enough. But everyone knows that Margaret is really the one in charge because, yeah, Henry VI ain't the one, honey. However, Margaret's army doesn't really behave all that well. They have a nasty habit of plundering the English countryside, and because Margaret doesn't have a way of paying them, she isn't able to stop them. So, once again, she is rapidly losing whatever popular support she might have had. It's not all down, though, because she does manage to reunite with her husband, Henry VI, 
when she stumbles upon him sitting unattended underneath a tree after a battle, which really is the most classic Henry VI thing to ever happen. And as it turns out, reuniting with her husband may have been a bad thing, because soon after meeting with him, Margaret is going to make a pretty big mistake. She is going to decide not to try to take the city of London. She will send in a ceremonial force to announce that she's in the area, but that's it. The decision to not try to invade London means that the Lancasters have a chance to relax and regather under the leadership of Cecily Neville. Meanwhile, Richard and Cecily's oldest son, Edward, allies with his mother Cecily's cousin, the Earl of Warwick. And Edward and the Earl of Warwick have made it pretty damn clear that if they win, they're going to fully push Henry and his son off the throne, not just set up a regency or be content with being his heirs, etc., etc. All the drama of the War of the Roses comes to a head at the Battle of Taunton, which is the bloodiest battle in English history. It lasts for over 10 hours in absolutely abysmal weather, even by English standards. The Battle of Taunton is a huge defeat for Margaret. She, Henry, and their son Edward do manage to escape England via Wales and then to Scotland, where they get stuck in the border town of Berwick for quite a while. However, with their escape, Edward of York declares himself King of England and formally becomes Edward IV of England. In 1463, Margaret does attempt an invasion of England via France. She tries to get financial support from France's new king and her cousin, Louis XI, but that plan, but that plan never quite takes off. Two years later, Henry VI does attempt an invasion from Scotland. To no one's surprise, it is a complete fiasco, and he quickly gets captured by Edward's men and is sent to the Tower of London, which is more than a little bit awkward. Margaret then spends the next few years waiting it out in Scotland, trying to figure out what she's going to do next. By 1470, she does have a small opportunity to make her move, because Edward IV is losing some serious support, mostly due to the fact that he's isolated the Earl of Warwick by marrying a quasi-randomer, Elizabeth of Woodville. Margaret is able to strike up an alliance with Warwick, and through this alliance, she decides that she's going to come back to England and restore Henry VI to the throne, by which I mean she's going to put her son on the throne and really be the power player behind the scenes. To really shore up this alliance and re-kickstart the dynasty, she marries her son to one of Warwick's daughters. In 1471, Margaret returned to England for the first time in almost a decade. However, her entrance wouldn't last long. The same day that she landed in England, Warwick died in battle against Edward IV, and Margaret was forced to take refuge in a local abbey and make a plan. She regrouped 
and prepared for yet another battle. However, the next month, her forces were completely defeated in the Battle of Tewkesbury, and her son, and the person she had pinned all of her hopes on, was killed. In the Battle of Tewkesbury, both Margaret and Henry VI were taken prisoner, and Henry died mysteriously soon after in the Tower of London, aka he was most likely murdered on the command of Edward IV. Margaret then spent the next five years in English custody in Wallingford Castle. During her time in English custody, she was given a decent amount of autonomy because, after all, she was a former queen, but she was kept under close guard to ensure that she wouldn't try to escape or try to rally surviving Lancaster forces to her. Her main guardian slash companion during this time in custody would be a granddaughter of Geoffrey Chaucer, weirdly enough. In 1476, Margaret got ransomed back to France. In exchange for the ransom, her family had to give up control of Lorraine, Anjou, and Provence back to the French crown, and Margaret had to sign a pledge saying that she was giving up any claim to anything in England that she may have had through her marriage to Henry. When she returned back to France, she lived in gentilish poverty, her cousin, King Louis XI, refused to give her a royal allowance or a royal pension, and she basically was stuck in a family castle in Loire. Margaret ended up dying in Anjou on August 25th, 1482, at the age of 52. She is buried in Anya's cathedral, but most of her tomb was destroyed during the French Revolution, and her remains were almost certainly looted. In terms of her legacy, Margaret is most famous for being in William Shakespeare's trilogy of plays about Henry VI, where she is extremely villainous and explicitly has an affair with Beaufort. More modern fictional depictions of Margaret tend to be a little bit more nuanced and a little bit more sympathetic towards her, which I think is appropriate. In short, I went in to the research of this podcast episode not liking Margaret of Andrew. I assumed she was going to be just a stock character villain and that she deserved her defeats. I'm not really sure where I got that idea from because I knew next to nothing about her. Maybe it was because I had started out with Cecily Neville, but by the end of this episode, but by the end of my research, I have to admit I was extremely, I respected her a lot. One, Henry VI just sounds so exhausting to have to live with, but she did. And two, I'm always going to respect a woman who at least attempted to get power and be competent and put her mark in history, even if the way she went about it weren't great. Like, Margaret did hustle, and I do have to respect the hustle, even though she still definitely is not my favorite figure I've covered, because when it comes to the War of the Roses, I'm always going to be a little bit more sympathetic towards Team Tudor, to be totally honest. So, for those fans of the study guides who prefer bullet points to a full-on lecture, let's do a quick little recap of Margaret of Anjou's life. 
Margot was born in 1429 in France. Both of her parents were minor members of the French nobility. Her father was the Count of Anjou. Her mother was the Duchess of Lorraine. And Margaret herself was the niece of the King of France. Because of all this, she grew up fairly well educated, very much believing in ideas like chivalry and the idea that women who are married to kings can be active members of the government. In 1445, when Margaret was 15 years old, she became engaged to Henry VI of England as part of a larger peace treaty between England and France. As part of this marriage treaty, England had to give up their claims to Anjou back to France, which made the marriage extremely unpopular within England. The marriage treaty was also part of the larger court tensions that were brewing since Henry VI had came to the throne as a wee baby, by the time Margaret entered on the scene, the English court was already getting split between the pro-Lancasters and the pro-Yorkists. When Margaret and Henry finally met in the spring of 1445, it was pretty clear that their relationship was not a great match. She was super passionate, wanted to get things done, big believer in romance, strong opinions, while Henry was super pious and super passive. Despite this mismatch, there was a treaty to get signed, so the two got married, and from the outset, Margaret wasn't exactly popular due to her ties to the French. Soon after the wedding, Margaret quickly allied herself with the Lancaster faction at court, especially Edmund Beaufort and the Earl of Suffolk. She quickly realized that her husband was not exactly great at ruling, and if she wanted to have power and influence, she was going to have to get stuff done herself. And she did get stuff done. She helped found Queen's College in Cambridge and basically made herself responsible for making sure that taxes got collected within England. But she also stirred up a lot of court drama. She pushed her main rival at court, the Duke of Gloucester, her husband's uncle, out of power due to some charges of treason, but after that happened, her BFF, the Earl of Suffolk, was forced into exile and then beheaded. In 1453, Margaret's husband, Henry, started to suffer from some pretty serious mental illness and could no longer rule, causing yet another power vacuum and more drama at court. Henry's cousin, Richard, the Duke of York, became the regent, which made Margaret a little bit uncomfortable because Richard's claim to the throne was almost too good. In the middle of all this discomfort, Margaret gave birth to a son, Edward. Finally, there was an heir, except rumors were swirling that Henry wasn't the father, and instead, the father was Margaret's BFF, Beaufort. Pretty soon, the power struggles between Richard and Margaret were so dramatic that they spilled over into fighting, and the War of the Roses began in 1455. While things did quickly return back to a truce, the tensions between Margaret and Richard of York remained. In 1459, fighting broke out again, Richard won, and forced 
Margaret, and Henry VI to recognize him, not their son, as the next heir to the throne. However, Margaret turned things around thanks to an alliance with the Queen of Scotland, Mary of Gelders, and in 1460 defeated the Yorkists at the Battle of Wakefield. During the battle, Richard of York was killed, so now Margaret, once again, was in charge of England. However, due to some poorly thought-out strategy in a very unpopular army, as well as Richard's oldest son, Edward, making some excellent alliances, Margaret doesn't stay in charge for long. She gets defeated in the Battle of Taunton, the bloodiest battle in English history, and has to take her husband and son and flee up to Scotland. Margaret is going to stay in Scotland for almost a decade. She will not be with her husband for the whole time, though, because in 1465, Henry VI is a complete idiot, wanders back to England in an attempt to regain his throne, and gets captured by Edward IV's men. Finally, in 1471, Margaret's time has come. Edward IV has lost a lot of noble support. She makes an alliance with the Earl of Warwick, comes back to England, and almost immediately gets defeated at the Battle of Tewkesbury. At Tewkesbury, her son, heir, and truly the only love of her life, is killed, and after the battle, both Margaret and Henry VI are taken prisoner. Henry mysteriously dies, aka is murdered soon afterwards. Margaret spends the next five years in English custody before getting ransomed back to France, where she will live in genteel poverty at a family estate when she dies in August 1482 at the age of 52. So yeah, a really jam-packed, super exciting life. Most of my research for this week's episode came from Joan Johnson Lewis's article on Margaret for Thought Co., Eski Oskun's article on Margaret of Anjou for History of Royal Women, Susan Flancer's article on Margaret of Anjou, Sarah Gristwood's book Blood Sisters, and Jacob Abbott's book Margaret of Anjou. As always, for a full bibliography and relevant images, you can visit the website sadgirlstudyguides.com. If you want to, if you have questions, comments, or concerns, you can email the podcast at sadgirlstudyguides at gmail.com. And as always, if you want to financially support the podcast, we have a Patreon at patreon.com forward slash sadgirlstudyguides. For $5 a month, you get access to bi-weekly tangent casts where I talk about people, places, or things that didn't quite make it into the main podcast. Last week, we chatted about Catherine of Roy, who was Henry VI's mother, and her pretty scandal-filled life. And as always, I'm on social media. There's the Twitter at SadGirlStudyPod and the Instagram at SadGirlStudy. The best way to help the podcast is to tell a friend or subscribe. We're available on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and Spotify. And please let me know how I'm doing. Read a review or else I'll be sad. Thanks.